This is Winning Slowly, taking a long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. Because doing good work takes time. I'm Chris Kreitcho. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And today, we're going to talk about social presentation of self on the internet. Which really means... <laughs> That's what we're going to do. <laughs> that sounds, it's, it's totally true, but it sounds way nerdier when we put it that way, even though that's kind of how I put it when we were talking earlier. Yeah. <laughs> prepping for the show. We're going to talk about how. We basically you, mean. Yeah, what you do on the internet and how you present yourself and how you show other people who you are and what that means and all of the ways that the internet mediates your identity and personality in ways that you may not expect or may not even think about. Yep. We'll we'll start by getting the short, easy, obvious one out of the way. No, what people post on Facebook is not an accurate representation of their lives. People only basically post particular happy things on their life. You get the occasional person who posts all their rants about everything. But for the most part, people post highlights, and that's true of Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and, and so on. So, yes, first order, pass. All those articles that you've seen that say, look, you don't need to be depressed that your life isn't as awesome as your friends' lives on Facebook are because their lives aren't actually that awesome either. They're just only posting the good parts. Yes. Next. (laughs) We don't think that part's particularly interesting because we think that part's been covered by lots of people and should be relatively obvious at this point. Right. And I almost shut Chris down on this topic because I was like, Chris, this is not interesting. Like, that's... (laughs) That's what relatively intelligent, thoughtful people have been saying for longer than we've been a podcast. So, <laughs> and, and we trust, dear listeners, that you are rel- at least relatively intelligent and thoughtful. Uh, yes, we do. <laughs> we do. <laughs> we do. <laughs> I would never accuse them of you being relatively intelligent. I think you're all exactly. intelligent. <laughs> but Exactly. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to our show, right? Uh, we're going a See rabbit hole. There? We're losing it. We're losing the thread. <laughs> Who's in the thread? How are we presenting ourselves on the internet via this podcast, uh, Not a good way today. Not in a good <laughs> way today. Hey, man, it's been pretty intense recently. Some humor's good. That's right. That's right. So what we are interested about is the ways that the idea of having multiple faces that you can put on the internet is a way that we just kind of subconsciously navigate the internet. And so this is interesting to me because I've been doing public things on the internet since 2002. That's before the age of social media. That's in the age of the original app, Instant Messenger. So most (laughs) of my public-facing work was not social. It didn't have to do with interacting with my peers on the public web where that data can be mined. It was in Instant Messenger, and then I was doing professional work. So as soon as I got on the internet, I was doing professional work. And so that has shaped the way that I think about the internet for the last 14 years. For me, by contrast, a lot of my usage all the way along has been quote-unquote social. So my entree into the internet was via forums, and in my case, rather nerdily, via Star Wars video game and book in comic forums because well i was a nerdy kid I'm, I'm kind of still a nerdy kid at heart don't don't tell anybody i'm really getting excited about watching doctor who tomorrow night <laughs> so uh 
I was there posting on forums then, and a friend got me going with Azanga in early 2005, and then I was off into the blogging world and on Facebook and all of these things. And so while I have presented myself professionally in different ways, especially through my website over the years, I've been much more a social presenter of myself than Stephen has. And if you were to go looking through the, the depths of what Google can trawl up about Chris Kreitcho versus what it can trawl up about Stephen Caradini, they would be very different things, even though in a lot of ways, Stephen and I do fairly similar things. Mm-hmm. We both write a lot. We both share content that we put together. Mm-hmm. I mean, we run a podcast together mm-hmm. now. We're both academically minded. Yep. We're, we're interested in slightly different things in academics, but we're both academically minded. We're both into music, again, slightly different kinds of music, mm-hmm. but we share a lot of interests and a lot of things about even our approaches to those interests. And yet, if you were to go asking Google about us, you would get very, very different pictures. Which is particularly interesting because, as Chris noted, he had a Zanga, I had a Zanga, but when Zanga died, I didn't bother to save my Zanga except in a document <laughs> on my hard drive. So, you know, I I had my angsty teenage moments, but because I had the <laughs> great, great fortune of being angsty and teenager in the early 2000s, which we largely don't have records of anymore because GeoCities and Tripod and Zanga and MySpace and Friendster, all these things that like I had my angsty teenage years on, they are gone. <laughs> They're gone. They are gone. You can't find them. I'm sure that if we trolled really hard through the internet archives, we would find a few traces of them, but that is it. And that is... It, it's good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's good. If... <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it, it's also kind of worrisome. I mean, there's a reason that we, we give 10% of whatever support we get to the internet archive, because thinking about it, Well, on the one hand, we might all be kind of glad to not have our angsty teenage years trapped on the internet forever. On the other hand, having lost huge amounts of the internet from the late 90s and early 2000s is really sad, and it's going to make it pretty difficult if you're someone like Steven in 20 years doing a PhD on the development of certain kinds of media and new Mm -hmm. media on the internet, when huge chunks of the early history of the internet are just gone. Yeah. But... What we're particularly curious about is, okay, so how does that affect you and me? Because one of the things we were thinking about as we were preparing today is, okay, assume you're like Steven. Assume you've approached this as just a professional. And we'll come around to some of the more personal sides of it in a few. But assume, of course, I say that. If if listeners have been paying attention, they know how good our record is on things where we say we'll get around to this topic in a few. Yeah, we, we might not. <laughs> But we're going to start here and see what happens. But we're going to try. <laughs> yeah. But but assume you're Steven and you've started out your career covering music and all of those, these things. And say in five years, Steven's gotten his PhD and he's done all the things and he says, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm going to go become a florist. In real life, if you decided to abandon your previous existence as a guy covering music, etc., and I'm using real life in contradistinction to the internet here, even though, of course, the internet is part of real life, but in, in physical embodied space and interactions, if you pick up and move across the country and, and start a, a floral shop, no one is going to have any idea that you had this whole previous existence as a 
guy who covered music and got a PhD in it, etc. You're just the guy who set up the the flower shop there mm-hmm. on the corner, and maybe you cut roses well, and maybe you cut roses poorly, but <laughs> apart from that, that's kind of all people know, except for what you tell them. Right. But now we have Google, and they go looking for Stephen Caradini's flower shop, and they're like, wait, is this... Is this the same guy who's got this decade and change of music <laughs> review? What does this have to do with flowers? I don't. Right. And so your public facing identity has shifted in some ways. But now because you have this history to greater or lesser extent, depending on how much of it has been lost and fallen off of the Internet, you have a more complex identity in some ways that you can't necessarily shake as easily as you might want to. Right. And so there's a sort of analog to the way that we live in community because if you have something that's outside of your professional life that's how you live that's part of your life day to day they see those changes so when you lose your job a and you get a new job b even if it's in a different field they still remember that you used to be in job a and so that's part of your existence and this sometimes has commentary on what you do so if i start a flower (laughs) shop and people know that I used to run a music blog and be a PhD student, they're going to think, wow, he, he burned out. Like, that's what happened. He got, he got out of there, he got his PhD and said, I'm quitting. Or maybe they think, oh, man, he couldn't find a job, and so he just decided to do something else completely. <laughs> and those may or may not be true, but the narrative that you can build out of the ability to track people's long history over very mm-hmm. sporadic pieces of media about them on the internet is different than in 1980 if you just moved across the country and said, hey, I used to do some other stuff and now I'm a florist. <laughs> it's different. Right. It is. It has changed the way we think about identity. And of course, again, kind of that first order response is, so be careful what you do on the internet. And, and yeah, that's, that's true. But it's more than that, because it's more than saying, look, don't post pictures of your drunken self when you're in college. I mean, I'd say don't be a drunken self in college, but if you're going to, don't post pictures. So there is that first obvious, yes, think about this. But we also want to say, okay, think carefully about this, because some of those second order consequences may not be obvious. The fact that I have a decade or so of writing about theology on the internet also means that things I said a decade ago about theology, which I may now kind of cringe at because maybe I don't think they're totally wrong, though in a couple of cases I think they're totally wrong, Mm -hmm. but maybe I just don't think I said it well, or maybe I think that it needs a lot more nuance than I gave it then, or maybe I think that it's half wrong and that it's half wrong in ways that make me really want to repudiate it. You know, what about those comments that I left on nationalreview.com back in 2007? Do those represent me today? I don't know. No, no, they really don't. But they're a part of my public identity on the internet. And unless National Review just scraps all those, which who knows, they may have, they may be gone. They're part of what people could construct if they want to paint a picture of me. Now, this isn't an exactly new problem because Augustine definitely published a book (laughs) called Retractions, where he just retracted a bunch of things that he said because... He had had the same problem where the things that he had written over a long period of time were no longer, in his estimation, a good reflection of where he was at. And so we're not talking exactly about a new problem, but there's a difference in that Chris and I are not as well known as Augustine. (laughs) 
<laughs> but by just a little bit. By just a small bit, you know. You know, Augustine's podcast probably wouldn't have much more listeners than ours. <laughs> but there's a shift in that the average person now has to think about these sorts of things. Even people who don't have long-lived blogs, that sort of does my past accurately represent who I am now is much more of a question that'll come up than a sort of self-reflecting, understanding, self-knowledge type of question that it may have been for the last 50, 100, 500 years. Yeah, it has a bit of a more pragmatic side to it now. Yeah. What, what is somebody going to think if they try to hire me and they look at my blog post from 2008? Well, hopefully they'll see that the way I write in 2015 is different than the way I wrote in 2008, and they'll appreciate the trajectory and the trend. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I mean, it's it's also something with associations, right? So I've got mm-hmm. a bunch of different things that I'm a part of, and I'm <laughs> uh, I'm I'm laughing at myself because I'm trying to go through the list of associations I have that are incongruous, and there are lots of them. <laughs> and if you put them all together in a line, it's like, what is this? Is this even a real person? <laughs> but there's this mass of associations that may or may not make sense because they, as we talked about last week, they may or may not overlap in any real sense. And so Mm -hmm. if you're getting hired or even if somebody's just looking to figure out who you are and what you do, they're going to find a bunch of different information way before perhaps they even sit down and have a conversation with you. I mean, like I said, I was just laughing at the number of things that you can find on the internet. I am the advisor for the Bronies of North Carolina. What? That's right. I am, That's awesome. I am, I am the advisor for their group. Uh, so, I mean, this just, my reaction goes to illustrate the point. I'm, I'm one of Steven's best friends and know him pretty well, and we talk all the time. Yeah. I had no idea. I've actually never seen the show, but uh, they needed an advisor. <laughs> But that's something that, you know, you can find on the internet if you look hard enough. I'm, And then I'm part of a graduate Bible study, and I'm part of a blog, and I've written for other people's websites, and, and now I'm working on helping our church put together a gallery for First Friday. So there's just a lot of different things, some of which seem to be connected and some of which don't. And it it's just odd to think about somebody accessing all of those things at once. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the same is the same is true. I mean, Stephen's a quirky guy, so maybe he's got a few more of those unusual intersections. But really, those those kinds of things are true for all of us. I mean, you look at me, and my blog includes everything from poetry to programming tips and samples of music I've written and theology and random pictures of my children. And well, it's it doesn't seem like a coherent thing unless you know me. And then you realize, oh, well, he's a programmer who writes so-so poetry and okay music and does all these different things because they're interesting to him. And when you know someone in person, you can often see how those pieces fit together. But all communication is, is mediated to some degree or another simply by dint of the fact that, you know, I have to say words and you have to hear them. I don't get to upload my thoughts directly to your brain. And no, we're not talking about Facebook's wish that you could do just that, though we might get there in a different episode. Although you would have to have ads too. (laughs) Be appropriate, right? (laughs) Unless, of course, you were on a new OS and they got blocked. But no, the, the thing is, all of those kinds of mediation happen to some degree no matter what. 
because I'm using words and you're trying to interpret my words. But different media cause us to mediate in different ways. The way we present ourselves in a letter is different than the way we present ourselves in person. And that's different than the way we present ourselves on a phone call versus an email versus a tweet versus an instant message versus a Facebook post. We have all of these things, and some of them are much more ephemeral than others. No one on the whole mm. is likely to go trawling through your instant message history or in many cases is even able to get at that in the same way that they can get at your tweets. And yet some people tweet roughly like it's an instant message service. And so right. there's, a, there's a strange uh, split between the ways we, we tend to think about these different media and then the way we tend to actually to present ourselves on those different media. Right. And so we're moving back and forth a little bit between our personal and our professional because that's another thing that gets kind of crushed in together mm -hmm. when you start looking at a person on the internet is you see things from all over the place. You don't have these firm distinctions. And in a Christian milieu, you don't really have those firm distinctions anyway in that there's an affirmed sense that work is good and family is good mm -hmm. and community life is good and all of them should be interacting and affecting each other because they're all done in service to the Lord. And so having a hard and fast distinction is something of a 1950s creation. <laughs> Thanks, the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, so since the Industrial Revolution, we've thought about ourselves in a lot more autonomously atomic sort of ways as opposed to enmeshed in a community and enmeshed in a situation where all the parts of your life are interacting with each other. And so seeing it reconstituted in a digital way is actually kind of fascinating mm -hmm. because that's not really where we expect holistic living <laughs> to appear. No, you know? no, not at all. The, the Internet is often accused and, and accurately so in some ways of being atomistic in that it it does trigger this kind of fracturing of our identity. I mean, that's what we've just been talking about. But sometimes it has that opposite effect. And that's really strange. Yeah, and I think it's particularly odd when you do start to think about your social interactions and part of the reason that Google has failed at every social media that they've ever tried to do <laughs> is that they either want to make everything closed or everything open. So Buzz, mm -hmm. everything was open and that was horrible because everybody is not equal in your social sphere. That's just <laughs> not how you work. Uh, you can go read all of the horror stories of the first days of Buzz where people were just having horrible situations happen to them because not everybody in your email deserves to be on the same plane. <laughs> but then they said, okay, well, if everything was open and that was the problem, we're going to make everything closed and we're going to literally make them called circles so that you know that they're closed. And then it got too complex because you can't divide up everything into closed units. There's interplay. And so it's really complex when you start to think about identity because you have to deal with everything all at once. And that's mm -hmm. what Chris and I have been kind of grappling with is that for me, everything all at once means I basically just don't do anything social on the internet and <laughs> I do everything professional. That's how I deal with everything all at once is that I just remove half of what you would normally do with a normal human life, which if you think about the internet as an extension of real life, which Chris and I tend to do, is actually kind of weird that I do that. <laughs> That's weird. On the other hand, you can be me and left constantly grappling with the 
do I post this? Do I not? Where do I post this? How do I post this? How do I categorize this? Even just on my blog, sometimes I struggle with that. I go, okay, this kind of fits two categories. Where, where do I put it? This kind of overlaps between quote-unquote segments of my life. Do I share this thing on LinkedIn? Do I share that thing on Facebook? Do the people there care? That sounds tiring. <laughs> it, it, it is. I try not to think too hard about it, but it does get old. But one of the things your comment a moment ago pointed out to me and, and reminded me is that in our face-to-face lives, we still have those kinds of spheres. They're blurrier, but we have them. We make those kinds of distinctions. There are things we talk to our families about that we don't talk to our bosses about, mm-hmm. and vice versa for the most part. Mm-hmm. There are all of those kinds of fairly organic distinctions that we make. And so when someone like Google wants to make everything about you searchable, they're mistaking at a pretty serious and significant level the way human interaction and human relationships work. And they're misunderstanding when they tried to do the circles in Google Plus was thinking that, okay, yeah, we recognize that there are spheres, so you can neatly categorize them. And the reality is that the amount of work you have to do to categorize people, and sure, circles let you put the same person in more than one circle, but just doing the mental work of thinking about that consciously is way more than we do in our ordinary embodied lives. We just function that way, and the technology tries to make us categorize those with clear lines, even if clear overlapping lines, in ways that it just doesn't in real life. Those spheres blur into each other. I mean, Stephen and I interact as friends. We also interact as people who make a podcast together. And Mm -hmm. Stephen's making a podcast then blurs over into classes that he teaches and parts of his professional life. I make other podcasts, one of which touches more on my professional life. And then, and then we're both just friends, and we're friends with each other's wives, and we care about mm-hmm. how each other are doing spiritually and each other's mm-hmm. church situations. And, and there's no clear line there, because Stephen doesn't go to my church, nor to I to his, yet we're spiritually meaningful to each other, and, and so on. Right, and so there's all of that social knowledge, all of that social interaction, all of that is more difficult to parse than putting things into distinct circles or putting things onto a flat plane. So Mm -hmm. there's an interesting interplay between how we think about our own concept of openness versus closeness in a personal relationship or your, all your social relationships or the way you present yourself to Facebook vis-a-vis the world, because I know that the few times that I do decide to post something on Facebook, I'm aware that I'm posting it to not just my circle of friends, but the entire world because I have mine left public, I think, at the moment. Every now and then I have this spate of privacy. I'm like, ah, I must, I must close everything. And then a couple of months later, I'm like, yeah, this, I have posted like nine times since then. I can probably open it back up. But So what we're interested in is the ways that because we believe that embodied life and the internet life are contiguous. They run into each mm-hmm. other. They are part and parcel. They are a elements of the same thing. Deciding how we deal with the presentation of identity is a really complex issue that goes beyond don't post incriminating photos on Facebook. You really have to think <laughs> about how 
the things that you do are going to be interpreted, not even just the bad ones, but the good ones, and how you want to have people understand you before they've even met you. And so that's partially why privacy is super important, even if you don't think that you're doing anything bad or that you don't have anything to hide, which is the common anti-privacy phrase. Yeah, sure. Even if you don't have anything to hide, people are still making opinions about what you do and who you are based on what they can find about you. And sometimes right. you don't want all of that out there because that's not important <laughs> and pertinent to the person that you want to be. Yeah. It, one of the things that comes out of that then is the need for more sustained and deeper reflection in our communities, both online and off, I think, to say, how do we parse that out? And yeah, I'm increasingly becoming mindful of the need to teach this to my little girls as they get older. I mean, I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old right now, and they're not by any means interacting on social media. We're teaching them basics of interacting with people in an embodied state right now. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of teaching that goes into that. But we do have to start then thinking of, okay, how do I teach these little people how to be mindful when they start posting things online, as inevitably they will in the years ahead? How do mm -hmm. I teach them to walk this road out well and to be thoughtful about it? And how do we have those conversations you know, in the, in the youth group in our church and say, okay, guys, you can post that. But at a slightly less simplistic level than just saying, well, don't post anything you'd be embarrassed about in 10 years, as Stephen just said, is more complex than that. It's you're presenting a picture of yourself to the world and, and you want it to be authentic. You want it to genuinely represent you, but you also want it to be limited in certain ways so that you're not pigeonholed by that and so that you're not trapped by that. Well, it, in some ways, it's more authentic if it is limited in various yeah. ways. Yeah, that's a great point. An authentic interpretation of who I am professionally has my character built in, but it doesn't have my social sphere built in. Mm -mm. It, just, it just doesn't. And it right. doesn't have various elements of my spiritual life or my art making built in. Right. And so right. an authentic Those presentation impact of, it, but they're not in it. Sorry, go yeah. ahead. No, no, you're right. They impact it, but they're not in it. And so an authentic presentation of my professional self just doesn't have some of the things in it that Google and Facebook and all of that want me to have in it. Mm -hmm. And it's worth asking why those companies want you to have them have all of those things in it. And it's because it's valuable to them in a strict monetary sense to be able to incorporate all of that data so that they can sell you things via ads. And that's not malicious on their part, but it might not be good for you or for me to play that game the way they want us to. And so yeah. we want to ask those questions, recognizing that there are reasons and motives for flattening out things that way, or for asking us to categorize everything in ways that machines can parse out. Sometimes having a machine parse those things out can be valuable to you and me, but sometimes it might not, and we want to think about those things before we simply give in to the ways that our new corporate overlords want us to do them. <laughs> and if you're interested in this topic in further detail, I commend to you the excellent uh, Configuring the Networked Self by Julie Cohen, which is a book about privacy, copyright, and network architectures, and how the philosophy of law that undergirds all of our liberal structures of thought wreaks havoc on the ideas of privacy and copyright in interlinked ways. 
totally fascinating. And because it's a book about copyright, you can get a free version on the internet from Julie Cohen's website. So it's tough sledding in some places, but it's worth your time. We'll link it in the show notes. Before you go, sort xenophobia of is bad. <laughs> that's that's a good that's memory. all you need to know. The end. Sort sort of a follow up <laughs> to last week's topic about refugees coming in and the ways that people have responded to that. A fair number of commentators and even candidates and nominees in the Republican race. Have None of them are pretty... nominees yet, homie. None yes, of them. Thank, thankfully. Not a single one uh, of them. Would be nominees. <laughs> would be nominees. Hopefully none of them are. Uh, have said some pretty xenophobic things and some pretty hostile things. And this comes at the same time as we've seen one community in Texas react very badly to a kid named Ahmed bringing a clock to school and just freaking out about it and accusing him of bringing a bomb and, you know, just really, really bad things. Look, people who are different from us are not bad. People who are different from us are, in fact, good. And we we think that the diversity of human beings is a beautiful, wonderful thing. We, we don't think that you have to agree with everyone and everything, and we don't think that you have to approach everyone and everything in exactly the same way. Again, we don't have to flatten everything out. But as a friend of mine on Twitter put it, about immigration specifically, though it's applicable more generally, supporting a more biblical view of immigration is not saying all immigration should be legal. It says all immigrants are, wait for it, human. And that's the tack we want to take with all of these things. Look, no matter what your tack on people of different religions is, and especially no matter what your tack of people of different ethnicities is, they are people. They are people made in the image of God. Treat them with the dignity that they are accorded. Or as Stephen put it, xenophobia is bad. (laughs) (laughs) The song at the beginning of this episode was Modern Language by Postcards from Jeff. Please don't use it without permission. We asked and they said yes. Thanks again to Jeremy W. Sherman for sponsoring the show this month. You can find the full list of sponsors in the show notes. And if you'd like to support the show yourself, we would cheer for you and call you awesome you can pledge monthly at patreon.com slash winning slowly or give directly at cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly and as as we alluded to earlier in the show we give 10 percent of whatever support the show receives to the internet archive so that some of those bits of history that go rotting don't don't rot away forever you can subscribe to the show in itunes or your favorite podcast app If you like the show, would you do us a favor and like us on iTunes? Because getting good reviews and ratings helps us out a lot. You can also find us on Twitter or app.net at winningslowly or on Facebook. We try to post not just the episodes, but also content related to previous episodes. And last but not least, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Hit us up on any of those social media or email us at hello at winningslowly.org. As always, thanks for listening. See you next week. I'm done with this. I'm going to go become a florist. That was actually the uh, example that we gave. <laughs> okay. In our in our planning is a floor <laughs> so that that's the one i'm using yep <laughs>
But Augustine's podcast. It's an interesting Augustine's podcast. There we go. What's the name of the episode? <laughs> yes. Yeah, you threw threw my game off. You're throwing my groove. I, threw, I saw and I was like, oh no. <laughs> okay. Sorry. That's, that's okay.